Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. But the angel said to the woman, 
or Joseph Smith, or, or whoever. But Christianity is unique in that we are the only religion with a resurrected Savior. Everything about Christianity hinges on that. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he didn't, we should shut down shop right now and go home and eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's the end. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, everything changes. All of life is defined by him, if that is true. Here in Matthew 28, it was a dark time for the followers of Jesus. Very dark. The 11 disciples, the women, all the people he had healed, they had all staked their life on this man being the Messiah, the one who was going to save Israel from the Roman Empire, the one who um, would finally bring history to a climax and establish them as an everlasting kingdom. And then he died. He died. Not only did he die, he died cursed. Because Deuteronomy 21-23 says that um, if someone is hanged on a tree, they are cursed by God. So all their hopes and dreams were crushed. Everything they had been planning for three and a half years was over. What on earth do they do now? Are they going to be in danger of similar treatment since they followed him so closely? And on the Sunday after his death, some of the women went to the tomb. We know from other Gospels they were going to anoint his body. It was part of burial practices that had to be fulfilled, but, but it had been the Sabbath the day before, so they, they had to wait. That um, They believe he's dead. They're going to finish the burial of their friend. 
But they arrive to an unexpected scene. They, verse 2, behold something incredible. They behold it. Notice all the visual details there in, in those first few verses. Um, you see his, his appearance. It's like lightning. It's white. There's so many descriptor words. Why, why is that the case? Why is it like that? Well, it's meant to evoke a visual image in your mind. Why? So you can see the empty tomb as well. So you can see it in your mind's eye. The angel comes down and he opens up the tomb, not so Jesus can get out, but so the women can come in. The angels open the tomb and there's no one in it. There's no one in the tomb. He had been dead. He had died cursed on a tree. He had died arguably the most brutal form of death in human history if you study what crucifixion was like. And now he's no longer in the grave. And there, there are two reasons, there are two different responses to this when people behold the empty tomb. Everyone sees it and fears. That's what happens in this passage. The, the women fear, the, the guards fear, everybody fears. Everybody fears the empty tomb. And there's two reasons for that. There's two different responses to how you respond to the empty tomb. Um, the, the first is how the guards respond. They're so scared they pass out. And there's two reasons. Because first, an open grave is scary. It is. Imagine you went to the grave of a loved one and, and all the dirt was dug up and you peek in and the casket's there, it's open up and nothing's in it. If that were the case, you would conclude one of two things. Either someone stole the body or we're in the walking dead. You're not really sure which one, but something is scary about this. And second, the reason these guards pass out in fear is because they're in serious trouble here. They were tasked with guarding this tomb, and they were not able to succeed at that. And they will most surely be executed for failing to do this properly. They pass out in fear. That's the kind of fear they have when they behold the empty tomb. The women have a different kind of fear. They approach the tomb fearful, but in verse 5, what does the angel tell them? Don't be afraid. Jesus tells them that as well in verse 10. Don't be afraid. Everyone should fear the empty tomb, but those who know Jesus get comfort in that fear. The one who has stepped out of the grave is on our side. He is for us. And the angels tell them, come see where he lay. Notice the past tense. He's not laying there anymore. Come see the empty tomb, they say. Notice how many times in this passage um, there's a command to see. Um, verse 1, um, that they came to see the tomb. Verse 6, um, he's not here. Come see the place where he lay. Verse 7, go and um, he, go, go um, th there you will see him. Go, go to Galilee, you'll see him. See, I've told you. Verse 10, um, the, go to Galilee, you'll see me there. And then another version of the verb, behold. Verse 2, behold, there was an earthquake. Verse 7, um, behold, he is going before you to Galilee. Verse 9, um, behold, Jesus met them on the way. There's so much see imagery here. Use your eyes and see. The message we announce to the world, the message Christianity announces to the world is come see the empty tomb. Because the Savior who died for our sins was placed there, and he's no longer there. Behold the empty tomb. He is risen. The message, that's the message we announce. John 6.40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We call people to come see the empty tomb and look at the Son that is alive and believe 
and he will likewise raise us from the grave one day. The women see the tomb. They leave the tomb with a second response, fear and great joy. Verse 8, that they, they leave with fear and great joy. They're still, they're still scared out of their minds. What has happened? But they've got great joy because they've just been told by an angel he's not dead anymore. They are overjoyed that Jesus is risen. They don't have the crippling fear the way the guards did. They have exuberant joy. The one they put all their hope in, that they have spent all of Saturday mourning his loss, he's not dead anymore. He's alive. So they're commissioned by the angels. Go and tell. Come and see, and then go and tell. That's the Christian life. Come and see, and then go and tell. People must know that he's alive. The resurrection of Jesus that happens here is the single most important event in human history. It's the climax of the story of the universe. Understand how history works. Sydney, can you pull up that first slide? This is the timeline of history. I've showed you this before, but um, orange line, bottom line, is the age we live in right now. It began when God created the heavens and the earth. It's going to end when Christ returns one day. That's the timeline of all of human history. Everything is in it. When Jesus came, he announced the kingdom of God is at hand. He died on the cross. He rose again. He started the age to come, the new creation. First creation is the orange line. Second creation is the, is the green-blue line. Um, Jesus started it, and it will be completed, consummated when he returns one day, but it never comes to an end. It's going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever. And currently, we live in between the two ages in what theologians call the already and the not yet. That's where we live. The age that God created the universe and we live in that's corrupted by sin hasn't passed away yet, but Christ has began his new age to come, the new work that, that is going to be completed when Christ returns one day. And the, the crazy thing about this is that there's so much similarity between the two. Um, God created the universe in the orange line. He did it in a garden. He breathed the breath of life into a man, and he, he did that. But Adam and Eve brought about sin, and now everything dies. The universe itself is dying. So God is currently doing a new creation project, the blue line. Revelation 21.5, he says, I'm making all things new. He's doing a new work. And the new creation, the second one, it's crazy how much it's like the first one. Because why? Where does it begin? In a garden. In, in a garden. John 20, you go read the resurrection account. And when Mary comes to the tomb and she finds it empty, she sees Jesus and she thinks he's the gardener. Why would there be a gardener there? Because it's a garden. That's why. With, with, it begins with a man being born again from the dead. God breathed the breath of life into Jesus, and he came alive. It's the new creation project, and we're in that in-between spot now. The resurrection of Jesus was the turning point. It's when the overlap of the ages, the already and the not yet, began. It's the hinge point of human history. God's ultimate purposes for the universe and for you and for me were all sparked aflame by the empty garden tomb. So people must know. So they see him and they take hold of him. They leave the tomb and they start going toward Galilee as the angel told them. And on the way they run into Jesus, alive from the dead. They come and they see him too. But in a more descriptive way of what happens there, verses 9 and 10, what do they do? They 
come and behold him. They see him, but they also take hold of him. They cast their life onto him. This is what we do when we get saved. Being a Christian is not just believing in Jesus like he was a man in history, like George Washington or Julius Caesar. You become a Christian by casting your life onto him, taking hold of him personally for eternal life through faith. That is our goal for our lost and dying world out there. We want them to take hold of Jesus by faith. So Jesus gives them the same commission the angels did. Go and tell the disciples. The angel, adds, the, the angel added the word go quickly and tell his disciples. This isn't something you put off to later. We must tell people now. Not once we graduate high school or college. Not once our busyness slows down. Not once we get married and start a family. And, and we never graduate from this. We must go quickly. There's only so much time left. So they go and tell them. Matthew's gospel compresses all of it into one day, it looks like, as you get to verse 20. Um, but, but Jesus was on earth for 40 days. They go tell the disciples, and the disciples actually get to spend some time with Jesus um, in those 40 days. Um, but they tell him. They tell them he's alive. And right out of the gate, verses 11 through 15, uh, right out of the gate, the devil is at work to discredit the report. Because the devil, if the devil can convince people that Jesus is still dead, they won't turn to him to find life. They will continue to exist dead in their sins. The devil has lost, so he wants as many people as possible to suffer with him. That's why it's crucial for us to go and tell others that Jesus is alive. Because the devil and his minions are working nonstop to make people not believe in the resurrection. Lies abound both near and and far. The guards go and they tell the Sanhedrin, hey, um, uh, I don't know how to explain this, but Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. And uh, what, what are we going to do about that? And look how much they're denying it in that story. They tell them, hey, the tomb is empty. We literally saw an angel come down and roll the stone away. Uh, what are we supposed to do? And what do the Sanhedrin say? The elders, they say, just tell people his disciples came and stole his body at night. They're in that much denial. They hate the truth that much. We will lie to cover this up, they say. They are offered the greatest treasure in the world, the risen Christ, and they deny it. They love their own life and their money too much. So what do they say? Well, they say, we'll spread a report that the disciples snuck in and stole the body while the guards were asleep. That's, quite frankly, the silliest thing you could come up with. First of all, how did they do that quiet enough? Uh, I can barely sneak through my own bedroom without waking up my newborn. Like, really? Really? You, you came and you rolled back this two-ton stone together and snuck a body out of there and didn't wake these guards up. But secondly, what reason would they have for doing this? Their hope is lost. They had no reason to steal the body and announce that Jesus was risen. He wasn't. They saw him die. And they, would, they never believed he would rise when he would tell them. They didn't understand that. Anytime he told them that he was, that was going to die, they completely were confused by it. Jesus has risen. And there are a lot of lies being told to try and discredit that truth. And none of them hold up. The resurrection speaks for itself. I'll just give you three reasons why. First, if, if you're going to make up a story about a resurrection and make people try and believe in something like this in the first century, you don't make women the first witnesses of it. 
Women couldn't even testify in court in the first century. Why would somebody be stupid enough to make them the first witnesses to a made-up story in the first century when they're not even allowed to testify in court? The only way you'd ever do that is if it actually happened like that. Secondly, the tomb was clearly empty. They have to make up a lie as to why it's empty. Like if the disciples start announcing that Jesus is alive, he's not in the tomb anymore, what do they have to do to discredit that? Just go pop the tomb open and say, look, there he is. And they couldn't do that because the body wasn't there. They've got to make up a story that the disciples stole the body. And thirdly, the disciples had to have seen the risen Jesus for everything they go on to do and suffer because of it. They go out into the world preaching that he's risen. Either they saw Jesus alive or they didn't. And of the 11 disciples, 10 of them would be killed for their faith, for their preaching. John would be tortured and then exiled. And listen, if they saw Jesus alive, they died staying faithful to what they had seen. But if he was never alive in the first place, they know he's not. They know they didn't see him alive. If he didn't, rise. People don't suffer brutal executions for something they know to be a lie. They don't do that. The resurrection speaks for itself. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. But every age has lies that are prompted by the devil to try and convince people that Jesus is dead. We have a lot in our day. The first is live your truth. You know, truth is different for each person. It's different for each person. You should live out to the fullest what you believe to be true. Don't let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. Invest your, invent yourself in every way. That's foolish. Truth is not different for each person. Now, there, is, there are preferences and self-expressions that are different each person. I like pickle, ketchup, and onion on my hamburger. Some of you probably like other things on your hamburger. Some of you may not like any of those things on your hamburger. Those are all preferences. It's not truth. Truth is truth. Gravity is true whether you want it to be or not. Jump up and down and see. This kind of lie that you should live your truth is what leads people to say things like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. In other words, I believe I'm truly a man, but my biology is female. That's not truth. Your biology is the truth of who you are. This can lead to very bad places, because what if someone says, you know, my truth is that I really like being a serial killer, or my truth is that I really like um, abusing children, well, this lie that you should live your truth, um, if our culture believes that, they've got no basis for saying anything like that is wrong because people are just living their truth. This lie leads people to say, you know, maybe Jesus is risen, but if, if, if my truth is that he's not, that's okay. It, he, he's not. It, it, takes, it puts ourselves on the level of God that, that we get to determine what reality is. We get to determine what truth is, and you don't. God does. Second lie that people believe today, all roads lead to God. You know, all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of life and death and heaven and hell and salvation and God and creation and sin and holidays and clothing and about every other thing under the sun. But they all believe in love and goodness, so they're all, they're all basically the same, right? 
No, Jesus made that famous statement that night before he died, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus is really raised from the dead, that statement is true, and thus all roads do not lead to God. All religions will not save you. The devil would love nothing more than for you to be convinced that there is life found outside of Jesus in Islam or Hinduism or naturalism or materialism or any other ism, but there's not. There is life found only in him. Third lie, Jesus was a good moral teacher. The devil wants to diminish the world's view of Jesus, but he doesn't do it by calling Jesus evil. He just levels Jesus down to the level of one of the many great teachers of history. You know, he's the same as Socrates and Einstein and Gandhi and Mr. Rogers. This lie doesn't hold Jesus up as the risen son of God. He's just a teacher of good morals. The only problem is if you go and read all of the morals that he taught, they don't make a lot of sense if he's not the supreme lord of the universe. He, is, he has very clear and explicit teachings that claim he is the essence of truth and the God of all creation. He is supreme over all other teachers of the world because he's the inventor of all things that are true. And final lie that we'll deal with today, people are good by nature. We may do some bad things from time to time, but we're, in essence, mostly good people. The horrors of this lie is that it convinces you that you don't need the risen Jesus. If you're a good person, you don't need a Savior. You're on, the, you're on your way to heaven yourself. Only good people get into heaven when they die. And so if most people are naturally good by nature, they will get to heaven without any need of a risen Savior. The problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are God's good creation made in his image, but all of us are fallen in nature because of our sin. We're all fully sinners from the moment we are in our mother's womb. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins and we need someone to make us alive. People are not good by nature. They need the risen Savior who has conquered the grave to, 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 to change their destiny forever. These lies and many more abound in our culture, and everyone is shaped and formed by them from the moment they're born. You were formed by some of these when you were born, and I have been as well. We, we hear lies, and they, they sound kind of true, and we start to grasp onto them, and we need the truth of God's word to uh, re-disciple us, re-change our minds on that. And as these lies go around... Jesus comes to the disciples in verses 16 through 20, as these lies are going abroad... He gives them a commission, and thus to the, to the disciples, and thus to the entire church. They come up on the mountain. It says they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Um, why are they doubting Jesus is the question. Um, th there's two Greek words for doubt. The, the more common one is doubt, but the other one used here and used in Matthew 14 when Peter sinks in the water after he walks on water. It more means like waver or hesitate. Um, they're approaching a resurrected man. I'll give them a pass for hesitating a little bit. And Jesus gives them what we call the Great Commission, verses 18 through 20. He says that all authority has been given to me, all of it. By his resurrection and later his ascension, he has all authority over the universe. And since he has all authority over the universe, he has the right to command it to do his will. And if he has all authority over the universe, he has all authority over your life and my life and our church. So he can command us, and he does. He gives us what we call the Great Commission. He, he tells us to make disciples, verse 19. 
make disciples through three steps. Go, baptize, and teach. That's the process of making disciples. Go. You have to look for them. You have to go look for disciples. We go out from here and we seek out the lost. We don't sit and wait for them to show up at church. We're going to talk a lot next week about the lostness of the world that we live in. Just understand there was a day when people would just wander into church looking for answers to life's questions or try out churches because they were new to the community or they were looking for like-minded people to do life with. Um, That happens today, but a lot less than it used to. We live in what they call a post-Christian culture. They have moved past Judeo-Christian values, and they've got plenty of other outlets they can go to to find like-minded people now. So we have to go to them, as Jesus commanded. Everywhere we go, we are on mission to win the lost to Jesus. We have to put that into our mind as we leave here today. We don't clock in and out of being followers of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus 24-7. We are on mission everywhere we go, at work, at school, at the gym, at the grocery store, at the restaurants we eat at, in our neighborhood, on vacation, at the ball field, everywhere. We are on mission for Christ. In my senior year of college, me and my roommate um, wanted to keep this in our minds, so we took, we, we typed up on a Word document um, a phrase and printed out and cut it out and taped it above our door so that every time we walked out our door to go anywhere, we saw the words, you are now entering the mission field. Because everywhere we went was the mission field. Everywhere we go, there are people made in God's image who need the gospel. And we must be ready and looking for opportunities to announce that Jesus is alive and there's life in him. We go. Secondly, we baptize. That's the, just the outward sign for inward conversion. Our goal is to bring people to Jesus through faith that they'll be converted And baptism will be the physical picture of that. Our goal is that people would come to Jesus, that they would understand the gospel, that they would receive it and become part of the people of God. That's our goal. We want to reach them. And then after that, we want to teach them. Verse 20, teach them to observe everything I've commanded, all things that I've commanded. We don't stop at just reaching the lost. We, they don't just need to come to Jesus by faith. They need to be discipled. They need to be taught. Because their entire life, remember, has been formed by the lies the devil produces in the world. And their minds are shaped by those things. And the entire Christian life is one of deprogramming the lies the devil has taught in the world in your life. That's why you need All of scripture, he says, teach them everything I've commanded. Now, obviously we know Genesis through Revelation, Jesus orchestrated to be written. So we can apply that and say everything he's commanded is Genesis through Revelation. If we don't do this part, if we just get people baptized and their butts in a pew and that's it. We're essentially, spiritually speaking, giving birth to children and then throwing them out in the street and saying, figure out how to live on your own. No, we must teach them all things. This is why you need to read your Bible every day. This is why you need to sit under the preaching of God's word. This is why you need to be part of a Sunday school class. This is why you need to be meeting with other people to read and study the Bible. This is why you need to be reading the Bible as a family. You need to find and take every opportunity in your life to ingest God's word. You need to get in God's word until it gets in you. You, because the devil is working overtime to lie to you 
and brainwash you with lies that take your eyes off the risen Jesus. And God wants to use his word to teach you the truth. This is the Great Commission, and it's a tall order. It is never finished until Jesus comes. It takes all of us. This is not just my job. This is all of our jobs. Jesus gave this commission to all 11 disciples and thus all of the church. He didn't just say, you know, Peter and John, you go do this. The rest of you just show up and and watch. No, he, he gave it to all of them. And thus it's all of our job to be making disciples and reaching them and teaching them. It's a tall order. And if you're not practicing it, if we are not practicing it, we are failing to do the job Jesus left his disciples to do. If you're not sharing the gospel with lost people and teaching the saved people all the things Jesus commanded, you're not doing the task Jesus left the church. So so let that sit with you for a second and ask yourself, are you obeying the one command he gave us to do as we go out into the world? And he concludes with that beautiful statement, I am with you always to the end of the age. Though it's a tall order, Jesus is with us as we do it. You can't make disciples in your own strength. Jesus is with you. That's not just a sentimental statement. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in two weeks and how he empowers our sharing of our, of our faith. He is with us. Think about that final verse. I am with you. Where have we heard that before? Well, we just finished the Christmas season, and that's what Emmanuel means, God with us. In fact, we get that at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 121, that he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The book of Matthew is bookended, chapter 1 and chapter 28, with God with us. Jesus is with each of us as we seek to make disciples. So this is what we want to really throw our time into this year. I really want to challenge you as I'm challenging myself to really work hard and to be intentional to grow at sharing your faith. I don't know any Christian who says they share their faith enough. So wherever you are with that, whether you're really good at it or whether you never do it, seek to take the next step. Seek to grow. Let me share some things we're going to do this year to try and get each of us there. I've already told you, pray and go. Pray and go. The first, like, nine chapters, the first nine days are just praying. After that, you start getting your feet on the ground and doing stuff, Um, inviting people to church, writing cards to people to invite them to church, Um, sharing the gospel, prayer walking your neighborhood, all kinds of things like that. Get a copy of the book. Let's do it. Later this year, I'm going to have um, a Bring a Friend Sunday. Um, I don't know what Sunday yet, probably in early fall, but um, sometime this year we're going to have a Sunday where I want you to bring a friend to church, and I'm going to preach the gospel that day. Hopefully they're a friend that isn't saved, and um, bring them on that day. Let's, let's have the gospel wash over so many of our lost friends. In February, we're going on a mission trip. Several of us are going. There's still time for you to come if you're interested. We need to get you signed up, though, before all the spots fill up. Um, It's in Augusta, Georgia. We're driving up on February 8th. We're coming back February 11th. It's a two-day time up there serving and sharing the gospel. Um, If you haven't signed up, you want to sign up, let me know today. A few Sunday evenings this year, we're going to go do evening visitation. Sometimes we'll go see shut-ins. Other times we're going to go just see unchurched people. Um, unchurched people that we know, contacts we're trying to reach out to, we're going to go and see them. Another thing, take a look around you and think, who isn't here? Who is someone that used to be at our church but has fallen out of church? Make it your goal to help bring them back. 
several other ideas like that. We want to see people saved. We want to see more and more people baptized in those waters up there. Let me show you a picture. Sydney, bring up that final picture. Um, This is one of the old baptisms at Windmill Pond. Um, Some of you may have this photo. I I forget where I acquired it from, but... um, they didn't, best I understand it, they didn't have a baptistry in the church back then, so they went over here to Windmill Pond. And, and best I understand it, they, they did all the baptisms one day of the year. So anybody that needed to get baptized would get baptized one day. Um, multiple churches would come together to do it. They would fill up that lake. Um, a lot of people would get baptized on these days. And we, we baptize several people a year, we do, in this church, but, but not nearly that many. And most churches I know would say they don't nearly baptize that many in a year. Um, so let's just think for a second and ask, what did they do that, that churches today don't do? Well, just off the top of my head, they were less busy than we are. That our, our lives are flooded with busyness. We wear it like a badge of honor. We are scared to death of being bored. So we say yes to nearly everything that is asked of us. We pile things into our lives that may be good things, but they're detracting from great things. We're so busy with all the things we got to do that we don't even think that that person over there needs Jesus, and I need to talk to them. I need to work on reaching them. And we fail to do the most important things like sharing our faith. They didn't have all that back then. They didn't have social media and iPhones and travel ball and beach houses and 20 extracurriculars and side hustles and everything else that we clutter our lives with. But they did have a focus on the Great Commission. They were very serious about the Great Commission. They were very convinced of the importance of it, and we must change our hearts as well. If our heart isn't serious about the Great Commission, we must be like them, like the saints that have gone before us. We must do what Jesus commanded us to do. He commanded us to go make disciples, and he has authority to command our lives because he is risen from the dead. So today, come and see where they laid him, and then go and tell others that he's alive. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the risen Jesus. We praise you that he stepped out of the grave, defeating death forever. And that our sins have no control over us anymore if we have repented and and received Christ by faith. That that we no longer face the consequences of our sins. And we are gradually being changed to hate our sin and love you. And Lord, you've told us, come see the empty tomb and then go tell others that you're alive. And Lord, I pray that you would write that in our hearts and our minds today. That as we exit that door today, we are entering the mission field. We are going out to our homes and to our jobs and to our neighborhoods and to everywhere that we go from the grocery store to the gym. We are on mission for you. Grip us with that, Lord. May we throw away busyness. May we throw aside every weight that entangles us. And may we look ahead to Jesus and run the race that's set before us seeking to bring others to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.